from Refine Labs. This is State of Demand Gen. Hey everyone, welcome back to Demand Gen Live. Great to have you all here. We got an awesome agenda and also something coming up for both the people that are live. I think what most people live know, but for the listeners as well. We have episode 100 of Demand Gen Live happening next Tuesday. That's March 8th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 4.30 Pacific. We got Catano Denardi joining us, who uh, was on the episode one with us, and some of the people here were on episode one, too. We also have some uh, special programming, and then we'll move into a live AMA that can go in any direction. But would love if you've uh, gotten value from the podcast and you're able to make it to do a little celebration. It should be a really fun episode. So if you're available, would love to see you there. There'll be a registration link in the podcast and in the Zoom chat and wherever else you can find it. Awesome. Also, uh, but maybe we just kind of maybe we just kind of get into it. But today, I I spent several hours where I was interviewing people as a, I'm often interviewed for podcasts, but I was interviewing a couple of people. One about hiring talent culture, another one about being an enterprise level CMO at a really large company. And so we got some interesting insights. So stay tuned for that. But some of the conclusions that came out of those episodes, and number one, I've been talking about this for a while, but it continues like every day, it continues to be so clear to me. There's never been a better time in the world to be a B2B marketer than right now. There's never been a better time. And it's been basically every day that goes by, like yesterday was the best time, then now today's the best time, and then tomorrow it will be. And it's been, I've seen this trend happening since 2017. I started talking about it publicly in 2019 because buyers have changed dramatically. Companies go to market strategies and how they invest in different resources to go to market have not adjusted to these changes. And so now companies like 2017 passes by, no changes, it keeps going. And now companies are starting to get forced to make these changes. So the marketers that are there and can deliver, there is a major supply and demand issue. Lots of demand, not a lot of supply. What happens when there's not a lot of demand and supply, For this is more for the employer side, is that when there's a lot of demand and not enough supply, you end up paying, you could end up paying a lot of money to get someone that's a B or C player. If you don't know how to evaluate talent, if you don't know how to attract the right talent, there are certain things that happen that you could end up thinking that you got an A player for 350 grand. You actually got a C player that should be making way less than that. And there's other trends that we're seeing as well. I talked to hundreds of marketers. And if you break that down, I'm talking specifically on marketing ops, demand gen, campaign ops, media, like those, those types of roles. There is a major issue in the market right now. The people that work in these roles are overworked, underpaid, burnt out, not involved in strategy, and they are about to make changes that companies don't see. So this is a, another thing, just being transparent. All I do is I talk to a bunch of people, I collect data, and then I share it with you. And so what I'm sharing here for both the employee and the employer is that something in this dynamic needs to change because your employees now have more leverage than you do. And so if you're not able to create an environment and create a space where they are able to focus, grow, win, 
then you are going to get crushed in the in this. I don't like calling it a war on talent. I don't think that's right, but there's definitely changes going on in the market. And so now that we got that going, which is a perfect segue, because I'm going to go through a couple of tips for for career growth for marketers. Like actually, all the advice that I give, I've done myself. And I got six steps here that go in a bunch of different directions about just some things that you could do if you look at your career in a long-term view, not trying to be a millionaire tomorrow, but working to get to wherever you want to go. So like, you got to figure out where do you want to go first? And sometimes that changes. In 2015, I thought that I wanted to be a CMO, right? A lot, most marketers at some point, especially early in their career, think that they want to be a CMO. And then as you start to interact with CMOs and learn more about the what the actual job entails and things like that, you oftentimes backtrack to being to saying, I don't want that job. Because if you work at a, as a CMO in a thousand person company or a 500 person company, you're an administrator, you fight fires, you do very little actual marketing. And so a lot of people think that just like chasing the title is something, but so to get back on track, you need to be, you need to be able to act as best you can right now, set a goal for where you actually want to go. Is it to be a CMO? Is it to start your own business? Is it to have a bunch of work-life balance and be able to work at a company where you get fulfilled and be able to do a bunch of different things on the side or be able to like hang out with your family? Any of them are great. It's just which one matters the most to you right now. And that it can change over time. Just continuously thinking about that and then working toward it. Once you have that, step one is to make a commitment to getting there. I know in my life for things outside of professional stuff, like the th times where I don't get to achieve what I want to achieve is because I'm not committed to it. Because I think that I am, but when I actually go, like when you start to create friction, when you start to run into failure, when it starts to get hard, like those are the times where if you're not committed that you bail out. And oftentimes that's at the beginning. Like it's, you know, New Year's resolution is a really interesting way to look at it. Like most of them fail because of lack of commitment. So step one, you got to be committed. If you're not, then nothing else really matters because you're just going to try stuff and then lose motivation and, and move on. Okay. Let's get into the meat. Number two, you got to get on a team in a company that is growing. You need to be in the place where you can learn, where you can build connections, where you can get great experience, where opportunities present themselves, whether that's getting promoted, working on excited projects where you can learn and develop a body of work and spaces like that. You got to be in a place, in a situation where you can get all of those ingredients because as you learn them, you become dramatically, dramatically more valuable over time. Better network. You got a great set of stories that you can tell about how you moved a business from over a 12, 24 month period of time and your contribution to that. You build up a body of work and stories. You, if you're in an environment where you can try stuff, you end up learning and doing different things that maybe people haven't done before. It's so wild. Like I got, I was really, really lucky to have the opportunity when I worked at the company Vapotherm to spend that amount of time with the freedom to learn all these things that most marketers would never be able to learn. And all because I was in a, it was in a good situation in a place that wanted to grow with people that supported me. So step two is get into a place where you get those ingredients so that you can start to learn and develop. Number three is start a side project. 
in parentheses, to learn, not to make a ton of money, not to quit your job next month. If you want to do that, that's great. If that's part of your goal, then work toward it. But that's not the point of me saying this. It's to learn. And by, and this could be, for example, starting your own podcast. It doesn't have to be about marketing. It can be about anything. Starting a podcast just to understand what are the mechanics of that? How do I get listeners? What does the engagement look like? Something like that. Starting a community, doing side consulting, whether that's for free or paid. Building a like a social channel, like a Twitter channel or a uh, TikTok about throwing axes or whatever you want to do, for example. Starting an e-commerce store. There's tons of different examples, but the things that it teaches you, depending on it, teaches you how to actually do marketing, how to produce content, which is the most like the most important things. Social dark social content is the most important thing in marketing right now outside of positioning strategy, things like that. When you actually get into execution, everyone else thinks that it's like this extra thing that we do on the side. Let's, let's figure out how to get our employees to post on LinkedIn every once in a while. It's the most important thing. And so, and the side hustle where you learn gives you the opportunity to leapfrog everybody. So instead of sitting there climbing the corporate ladder, waiting for your promotion, next year and then going from manager to senior manager and then two years later maybe you'll get promoted to director and then two years later maybe you get promoted to senior director and just climbing up the ladder you're at a senior manager you start this side hustle which is an e-commerce store you grow that e-commerce store to 500k over two years you have a good story and then you go and become a cmo at a series a company or you go so that's you leapfrog people by doing those because you build a story and you build real tangible skills and you create awareness. So if you're doing a podcast or different things like that, you have something tangible. That's like, here's what I did. And in not so many ways, that's what I did. I did spend a bunch of time. I had, I was in different companies. Some of them were great vehicles to learn other time, other ones were not. And that's just sort of the way it works. But during all of them, I had a side project going where I was learning different things. And then all of a sudden when the opportunity came where it's like, Hey, I don't want to go back and work for another company and get forced to do marketing in a way that is so dumb and doesn't make sense anymore. I'm going to start my own company that teaches, that shows people a new way to do B2B marketing. When the opportunity presented itself, I knew about finance. I knew about cash flow. I knew how to market on social. I knew how to produce content. There was a ton of things that I had learned that then enabled me to capitalize on the opportunity at that time. But it was eight, 10 years of learning in order to capitalize on the opportunity. Number four is to consume information to learn in parentheses, be very selective on who you get information from. And so it doesn't, you don't need to get information from a ton of different sources, typically like one, two, three. So people that you really believe in, they can be you know, a mentor. You could call it a mentor, even if you're not interacting with them, but getting information from a couple of different sources so that it's consistent, so that it's aligned gives you the learnings that then over time you can put into practice because if you're not actually putting anything into practice, you're only doing a very small portion of the actual learning. My personal favorite, number five, is in every situation, think like you're the CEO. This is by far my favorite one because I think it's a secret weapon. I heard some people talking um, about how more and more CEOs will come up through the CMO ranks. And I'm like, it's great that you want to say that. And yes, if done right, like a CMO is very well positioned to become a CEO. But 
not that many CMOs think like a CEO, which is why not many CMOs move up to CEO right now. And so you got to be at all levels when you're the marketing manager, if you're the director of demand jet, if you're the CEO, if you're the account executive, if you're the marketing operations person, it doesn't matter. You got to be thinking like a CEO, which elevates the way that you think away from tactics and short-term stuff to strategy, long-term things that prioritize what are the most important things in the business that I can work on to make a, make a meaningful contribution, which then creates the story that you want to tell. So there's a part of it, which is just assessing when I go into companies, like most companies that I worked for, what they hired me for, I was doing something different within 90 days completely. They didn't change my job title because that would be weird, but I was almost doing a different job every time because I would go in in the first 90 days, I would talk to customers. I would assess business data. I'd look in the CRM. I would look at financials. I would look at gross margins. I would talk to customers and make my own plan. Like if I was going to write my own business plan, if I was a CEO, I'd put it together and I would say, these are the things that I would do in this order. And here's why. And when you come to people with a plan like that, oftentimes they'll let you do them. If it's, if it's well thought out and it makes sense and you, and you believe it and, it and you can make a big impact to the business that way, a lot of people will let you take those things on. That's how I, one time the company hired me to do like process optimization inside of a manufacturing line. I noticed that we were spending way too much on specific parts. I started resourcing everything in the supply chain. I added millions of dollars in gross margin to the to the company by just changing a couple of parts about where we got them from, which then created so much profit that we could go back and invest in new product development. We could change how we do marketing, certain things like that. So always think like you're the CEO is a massive one. If there's anything to take away, it's commit and think like the CEO in, in here. And then number six is find mentors or in parentheses, oftentimes they find you, which is really cool. I got to say thank you to two people that helped me a ton in my career. They were Lise Halpern and Andy Midland, two people that Lise I worked for. Andy was a consultant in my earlier career days. And Andy taught me so much about how to do customer research, why it's so important. Basically, the entire part of marketing that isn't Marcom that most people don't get. The entire part of it that's figuring out segmentation, competitive analysis, positioning, strategy, customer research, sales readiness, all these pieces that most marketers don't really understand and put into practice. I owe all of that to Andy Midwin. And then Lisa Halpern was just a pure strategist. And I got to see how, how much customer segmentation matters and how if you segment appropriately and you put together a go-to-market strategy and you're aligned with sales about where you're actually going and why, how impactful it can be. So sometimes you don't have to seek, seek them out. Sometimes they will find you if you put yourself in the right positions at the right companies. So just to round it out, step one, commit. Step two, you got to get into a place where the team is growing and you can grow with it. Start a side hustle or a side project to learn, consume content to learn, think like the CEO and find mentors or they might find you. And those are some tips about career growth that I think a lot of people could take away and act on that have been really impactful for me. So I hope that was helpful. That was awesome. And I think just to add something to the mix, see if any questions come out before we jump to the next one. I think um, having a lot of patience and like being, I think you spoke to that a little bit and like having the long-term view and, and commitment. 
these things don't happen overnight. And so wherever you are, like having patience to commit to really mastering your craft can often feel frustrating when you're in the moment. Um, but I think that that, that patience is, is key. Um, and in hindsight, you always appreciate it, but it's something that you don't always appreciate when you're going through it. 100%. I love that. Oh, I've got an anonymous question. Someone wants me to ask on their behalf. And so here, let me read this to you. How do you put yourself in a position where mentors can find you? Um, This is not easy for a lot of young professionals. um, And if you have any specifics about how that happened for you or how someone could make that happen, that would be really valuable. I think I can tell sort of by the way the question was asked. I think it's about sort of changing the way that you define a mentor. And so if you if you did that, like step two that I talked about, get on a team with smart people that's growing, where you have a lot of opportunities to learn that that are experts in your function, like just getting to doing that, you're gonna have a mentor on that team. Somebody that is going to be able to teach you a lot of stuff, which is what happened to me with Lise Helper. And I was just, she was my boss's boss and I just watched what she did and I learned a ton from her. And so sometimes it doesn't have to be like DMing 500 people on LinkedIn, hoping that someone will do an hour session with you once a month to teach you stuff. Sometimes you you walk into them just by being in the right situations and putting yourself on the right team. So um, that, could be, that could be one way. A ton of people send me, DMs and say, Hey, like, will you be my mentor? And honestly, a lot of like, a lot of people don't have the the time to do that. And a lot of people get asked that a lot. So like you can do the outreach and perhaps you will land something like that. But I think that there are actually different and better ways to do it. Like some could argue that just coming to this session is a form of mentorship. Right. And there's a ton, like we're doing one, but there's a ton and a ton of different areas in finance and in people, in hiring, in there's tons of things like this, which is a free content and community. So if you shift the the definition of mentor a little bit and open it up, I think that you'd see a lot more opportunities. And I say this a lot, but I call it mentorship moments. And what I what I tell people is there are things happening all around you that you can learn from. And you can learn from your peers, people that are earlier in their career, people that are later in their career. I think people um, ascribe like mentorship to being guided or being taught or told what to do. But there's a lot that you can learn and take away by observing other people, um, reflecting on interactions or moments that you've had. And so I I would agree with your point, Chris, and just kind of expand it a little bit of like, pay attention to what's going on around you, who's being successful, and try to observe and understand what's going on and find opportunities to ask questions in the moment to learn more or like gain a a broader perspective. I've always been like in search of like my mentor. And I always thought it had to be like one person to give me everything that I needed to know. And I let that go a long time ago and I find opportunities to learn from everybody that I interact with every day. And so that that mindset shift for me has um, opened up my eyes to pay a lot more attention and pick up more things along like along the way on my journey. All right, I'm seeing if we got some questions or comments. It's like a lot of chatting on this. Yeah. 
I, I'll jump to uh, the next one. I'm, yeah, I think it's time. Let's, let's go to the next topic and we'll bring more people on later. That sounds great. There'll be uh, more details on this one as we I talked through it on the podcast with Sarah Kennedy Ellis today with uh, this sort of, what's the topic we have here? How to measure, but all like also how to execute a combined product-led and enterprise demand motion. Tons of companies now have this, right? So whether you started a sales team, grew to 50 million ARR, and then at some point you're like, now we got to have a product-led offering. So you go and start to put this together and then you try and have a dual tier one, or you started as a product-led company for $7 a month, and then you grew to 50 million ARR. And then you're like, shit, we actually need to figure out how to sell enterprise deals. This like doing the $7 a month stuff in PLG is not going to get it done anymore. And whichever angle you get to, you converge on a place where you have a basically a, a dual funnel. You have a self-serve touchless funnel, and then you have a demo funnel. Most companies look at these like two independent systems, different teams, different measurements. Both teams are optimizing for their specific thing. So you have one team on the PLG that's only responsible for driving signups. If you're lucky, they're responsible for driving activated signups where people put in their credit card or do something like that. So you have this whole team that's doing that. They get a huge budget and they run 100% performance marketing to get as many people to fill out that form as possible, regardless of how qualified they are. And then you take your enter, and then you have an enterprise demand team. And this is mostly companies that start PLG and then realize that they need enterprise. And they say, okay, now we're going to build this enterprise team. We're going to add a demo and we're going to only score the enterprise team on how many enterprise demos we get. What does that do? It forces your marketers to run 100% performance marketing through a demo form and flood your sales team with people that don't want to buy because it's the only way to measure it. And so what we need to be looking at is that if you have both of these things, it's, they're both part of the, the enterprise buying journey. The product-led motion is part of the buying journey for an enterprise company. These are not separate things. And when you split them up, you create disjointed buying processes and you have competing goals. So you have your entire enterprise demand team doing things that don't work for enterprise demand because they need to fulfill a certain metric. Lots of product-led growth companies fall into this category, especially ones that started PLG and then add enterprise later. And they don't actually know. And so let's talk through, because I thought this was a really fascinating thing. So in the PLG motion, what you get is you get a team that's responsible for driving high volume of free trial signups. That's one team. Then there's a growth team that's responsible for pro like in-product notifications, emails, other things like that to help people hit a PQL score. And then what happens? It gets a trigger and you do unsolicited outbound sales. What does that sound like? Sounds just like driving people into eBooks, sending them email nurtures until they hit an MQL score, and then doing unsolicited outbound sales. So what people have done is they've just replaced the ebook with a free trial sign-up. They get people into the product, but it's actually mostly the same motion. And so how are we going to do this differently, right? I just talked through a lot of the flaws and how it's executed right now. So what will we do differently? Instead of thinking about the funnel or the conversion, think about the customer segment. And so regardless of whether you're enterprise, let's say you define enterprise at 500 employees and above. Regardless of whether your enterprise company fills out a demo, goes through a free trial, 
or does anything else, if they come through and then they create pipeline, then the enterprise demand team gets scored in the pipeline created by enterprise accounts. Groundbreaking concept, regardless of which journey they take, because the whole point of a product-led growth motion is to give your buyers options to reduce friction. So why, when you, ha- when you put that together, and that was the whole strategy, would you force your enterprise demand team to be scored on only people that move into demos? The whole reason is to have, have companies be able to get into the product, see value, expand and ha- add users, and then you actually go and sell them, which is way different than selling them cold. And so if you think about the segments, then you have a really interesting, the PLG, the product-led growth team, I think, continue to score that team on, I would move to PQLs or cost per, uh, probably cost per PQL was a really good metric because there's so much waste in this system. So you did PQLs and cost per PQL, which is a product qualified lead, which means that they've signed up, probably put in their credit card information and done certain triggers that make show leading indicators that they're going to convert into either a paying user or, or some type of paying paying account. So you can continue to have your, your PLG team score on that. And then your enterprise team score them on how much enterprise pipeline gets created total, not through the demo form, not just through the PLG, not just through the free trial form total. Um, and I think that you get you, that is how you create the flexibility for an enterprise demand team to go out and really create demand. And so I know that that's a, this is sort of a complicated concept and not something that I talk about too frequently. So uh, I invite questions here because I'd love to go deeper and continue to explain my thinking on this. Yeah, well, I drum up some questions. I have one for you because I think customer success can play an interesting role in really building true enterprise clients from potentially a product-led motion. You look at companies probably that have had the most success like Slack or something like that. And there's an interesting layer of what the strategy is of once your users come in, how you are moving those users through an experience that's going to bubble up to an enterprise and have them consider your offer. And so riff on that a little bit while I drum up some more questions, but I think it's an interesting component of the strategy, but I'm curious to hear from your perspective, how you think it might fit in, especially from a demand gen side. Yeah. I mean, the, maybe I'm caught up in the term customer success because in this motion, like there's no touch, there's no, there's no customer success touch. So it's basically just the product is responsible for driving the success to this point. Let me reframe for you yeah. because when I say customer success, I mean the user is um, achieving the desired outcomes or the results that is uh, motivating them to continue to use the product more in depth or continue to talk about it internally within their enterprise. I um, mean, it hits a, a critical mass where it does that. And I, I would argue that there's probably a lot of companies that say they're PLG, but actually do have a layer of human support, whether that's in a customer support team or otherwise that might help nudge those people along if the technology isn't completely there, but really more around like, that's what drives success for these companies. It's the product actually works and, or there's a human touch that ultimately drives an outcome that is so meaningful that there's enough value created for an enterprise to consider a broader purchase. Totally. And the way that you get people to recognize the value of the product is for them to first recognize the problem that the product solves. 
And so then like at a business level, right? Not at a single user level, but to have a business, an enterprise company that's going to be paying you six or seven figures for your, like they're going to start at whatever, 25 bucks a month. In the future, they're going to pay you six or seven figures a year. Like you need the business to viscerally feel the problem that you solve. And a lot of companies don't do this very well. They rely on dark social, which works very well in, in some product-led companies. You know, all the ones that open view VC partners and things like that, talk about all the time, the unicorns and things like that, the one-offs out of the top 0.1% of them that really shine. Like you get those stories, but what happens to the average one? And so like you need to be able to the for the business to feel that problem and be motivated to solving it which involves a lot of people using the tool what i what the the issue in the product led motion is that so people are so caught up in the leading metric of free trial signups that they do the exact same thing that they do with ebooks right now they run performance marketing to get low intent leads into a free trial signup to pump up metrics and then try and shove people through with in-app notifications and things like that to get someone to a score so that they can do outbound sales. And then the sales team needs to convince somebody to use the product versus they had success with the product because they wanted to. So I think that it's back. It's like, it's the same thing that happens in like, if you're selling to the enterprise, it's the same thing that happens in a pure sales led motion. It's that you need to, you need your buyers to have an affinity to actually doing the thing that you're offering. And I think that's that's what drives customer success is people really feeling the problem, the opportunity, committing to solving it, allocating resources to solve it, approving projects and budget, and then actually going and doing it. So my two cents there. No, that was great. Grant has a great question on this topic. I'm going to bring him on so he can ask live. Grant, welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. So to do this combo of PLG and sales assisted for enterprise, I think that really educating people well is an important part of that. For instance, if it's a more technical product, maybe they need to view documentation or see demos of that. So do you think that landing pages with no menu should become obsolete so that users can keep exploring with other pages, even after whatever they land on some specific page? I think that I wouldn't make that level of a blanket statement on this. Um, I hear where you're coming from. So like, am I a fan of using Google ads to drive people to a landing page? Like it's 2011 with no menu and no exit. All you can do is convert or leave. No, I hate that tactic. You drive a ton of like low quality submissions. When you do that, you get a lower CPL, your conversion rate looks better, but when you actually give it to your sales team and you look at CAC, it doesn't improve at all. So there are certain instances where not ha like not having the menu, I think is just very outdated and stale approach to like old school conversion rate optimization, where you're going to send thousands of people to a page and hope that they do a low intent action, like fill out a form. There are times where if somebody's on your website, deep in the site, and then move into a conversion, like on a demo form or something like that, it's our best practice to remove the menu at that point to eliminate distractions. It's like, here's where, here's exactly where you should go. People know how to hit the back button if they don't want to get that. And so if they're like, they need to be in specific interior pages in order to for that to happen, 
I think that's one good use case for it where we still continue to do it. But I think generate like maybe I can simplify my answer here is moving from some channel into a like a referral channel into a squeeze landing page, whether that's coming from paid social or anywhere else is something that I think is outdated. Yeah, agreed. Thanks. Cool, man. Did you have another question related to uh, like more into the PLG or did I answer what you were asking? You answered it. Cool. Right on. Happy to help. Thanks, Grant. It's been nice to have you on week to week. Kind of tapped out on questions on this topic. I think you should grab the last agenda item. And I have a few other questions we could get to off topic, but let's round out and hit all three agenda items today. Yeah, it's rare that that this happens, Um, (laughs) but I'm excited about it. This one actually should be pretty quick, but I, I see this a lot from from all types of companies and all types of seniority levels on the marketing team is using open pipeline reports based on on a monthly or quarterly basis to quantify the success of marketing. And this is very dangerous and very misleading. And I'll tell you why. Because you are only looking and visualizing open pipeline Okay, so if it went to closed one or closed lost, it, it some people show open pipeline and closed one, but regardless, if it went to closed lost, it gets removed from the chart. So what happens over time? Deals that got created in July, now it's September. More deals from July have been closed lost than, than were in September, right? More deals in September had been closed lost than the ones created in November, most likely. And what happens is you get this chart it looks like everything's going up because the most recent months, the pipeline hasn't had enough time to move to close lost. So the chart looks very nice. It looks like you're growing. But if you actually look at what's happening underneath, you oftentimes are not creating any more pipeline. I see usually when I see people graph this way, pipeline creation is flat. So I wish I had some charts. Um, I obviously I can put something together that's like generic, but obviously for confidentiality reasons, I can't just like share some of these things, but the effect is real. You do an open pipeline report, you get a graph that looks up and to the right. And then if you graph created qualified pipeline based on the date that it gets created, then you get a flat line. So I don't know, in 2018, I literally made this graph and I was like, why does it look like this? Our pipeline creation is not going up. We just started doing this. Why does the graph look so good? Oh, it's because the way that we're looking at this data makes no sense. So um, I'd be very cautious in doing anything related to open pipeline as a way, especially open pipeline over time as a way to quantify the success of marketing. I think that it's, I think there's much better ways to quantify it. And I will provide the one that I think is look at, instead of looking at the open pipeline, look at all pipeline look at all pipeline that hits the stage where you win greater than 25% and then graph it based on the time that it gets into that stage. So the pipeline created will stay the same and you don't get this fluctuation where as the longer time goes on, the worse and worse previous months look. So that is a really difficult concept to explain with no visuals. I hope that worked for somebody. I tried my best because I've just seen it a couple of times and wanted to, to let it let you know. And so if you, 
people, if you're graphing an open pipeline report, you should know. So if you are, then I would re-listen to this segment and think about it. If you have further questions, then feel free to shoot me a DM on LinkedIn. Would love to hear what you're doing and how I could help with this. We got a couple questions from YouTube. Been a couple episodes since that happened. So I want to get them in and ask on behalf of the people that are watching the YouTube stream right now. So this one is from Scott. He says, Chris, you've said before that you don't do any outbound sales for your company. Um, If you did do outbound, how would you tackle it? Or are there any specific outbound motions that you would recommend that you think um, are effective? So um, in the spirit of driving forward an entire go-to-market in the future, there's most likely going to be a time where we start to experiment with this in order to demonstrate other ways that companies could do this that I believe that will just be more customer-centric and more effective. So the things that I'm thinking about, number one, is definitely the targeting. Like running high-volume outbound spray and pray is over. I don't know why companies do it anymore. Sales engagement platforms let you just like spam a ton of people. It's over. Like So pick a specific set of accounts that that is not going to that you you need an overlay a personalization overlay that you're not going to get from demand and then start to work on those whatever that is some a lot of people will call this ABM or what I call enterprise outbound which is synonymous in most companies most companies call it ABM it's really just enterprise outbound but we'll call it enterprise outbound for my terminology and so whatever that set of companies is could be 50 per rep. I mean, at our company, it's probably going to be based on some level of signal, like a crunch-based signal or something like that. So however you decide how to level out the targeting is decide who are the sets of accounts and why are they in here and how do I keep it the pool small enough where I can create personalization. I don't have to put this people through a 21-step cadence over 30 days. And if they don't convert, I just give up. How do I start to play the long game with them? How do I create relationships? How do I add value? How do I get that? How do I plan to have that company try and enter my pipeline within the next 12 months, not within the next 12 minutes? So those are some of the initial things that I would be thinking about. I think one of the the major keys here is on the actual activities that you're doing and why you're doing them. So what... I found in outbound, and I think one of the reasons why it doesn't work that well for companies, it creates a lot of meetings and not a lot of revenue, buyers don't like it, things like that is because it's 100% transactional. Can we have a meeting? We do lead gen. I got this new IT provider. You want to have a 15-minute meeting with me? Can we chat next week? Tons of people are now getting really clever and putting like misleading subject lines in to get you to open the email. And then when you open it, you're like, what the fuck, dickhead? Why would you do that? You just wasted my time by tricking me to open your email. So like none of the like tricks, gimmicks, stuff like that. And how do you approach it with a long-term view, a customer-centric approach? So I'll give you a couple of examples. If you have that list of people, like let's say that we have the list, it's 200. Let's say that at your company, you have a couple of people that are active on LinkedIn every day. I would then get all whoever those people are to start making connections 
with all of the decision makers or all the influencers of your stuff at those accounts. So you have initially start to get some level of exposure. So that's one thing that you can immediately do. There's been a, uh, some talk about how to leverage events. I personally like don't, uh, tons of people send me invites and I'm sure a lot of people get these of like, here's a, I'm sending you a cold email on LinkedIn. Hey, I'm having this event. You want to come? And it's like always a no. Um, so I think that the ask to move into an event is often too strong, especially when it's in like a one-to-one setting. So events wouldn't be one that I'm thinking about all that much. So, I mean, basically it would be more personalized form of doing demand gen that becomes in a more of a one-to-one setting, but the keys are non-transactional, thinking long-term pieces like that, which then in order to do that, you would need to completely change how you measure an outbound team. And it's so fascinating because there's a bunch of companies that, that whether they work with us or not, they want, they love to do ABM and then they, they measure it in such a short time window that it forces you to do transactional stuff that doesn't benefit your buyer. And so I think if like what we're doing here is we're building a high powered velocity inbound motion, it's going to continue to fuel the growth of our company where the outbound component becomes extra, which mo- what most companies do, where they don't have the inbound flowing, the outbound reps are starving, and then they have to do transactional stuff. So it's almost like, it's almost to me more about creating the conditions so that the outbound team can think long-term and act long-term than, yeah, I think that's, I think that's what the key part for me. I think that was super well said. I think there's also an interesting play. It happens naturally for us with like customer referrals, but like being proactive about asking your best customers to let you know if there's anyone else that, you know, in their network or that they know that might benefit. I think um, especially people that have seen a lot of success um, often will do that on their own, but there's a way I think to, to ask for that in a, in a way that will be well-received. Mm-hmm. All right. I got some other questions coming in. Love Ready it. to bounce around a little Let's bit. Let's do it. Um, yeah, yeah. Duke, I love your name. If that's your name. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you. Hey, Chris. Hey, Duke. Good to have you here. Thanks, ma'am. So uh, this question is a little bit different, but we're trying to differentiate ourselves with a strong point of view and an opinion in a highly commoditized category, which is print. What do you recommend are things we can do to build this out to separate ourselves? Mm, I don't think that a point of view is enough to differentiate you in a commodity market. So if it was me and it was my business, I'd be looking for something deeper than that to differentiate on deliver, you know, some level of delivery or distribution could be one thing, the actual product. So how do you either like, how do you niche down or how do you use paper to create a different company long-term, right? So I'd continue to have this like commodity market. And then I'd try to think about how do I create a differentiated different brand that's get, that's get built in my company that we then grow based on customer insights. So I would think more about product or, or distribution strategy. There's been instances like the, what are some good examples of, of distribution strategy? 
where companies change how they um, how they go to market. Like for instance, mm-hmm. um, Uber is kind of like this. It's not the best example. I'm just like blanking right now. But the idea of instead of like having to walk to the street to get the taxi cab that you can just go directly to the person, like it changed the dynamics of of how you do it. When it comes to to paper, it could be finding companies that need need a specific like way of getting it. Um, would love to go back and forth here on this because I just threw out a couple of things. But in my view, like mar- a marketing strategy can help you sell commodity products. But it's in a it's a way more advantageous position to actually be differentiated and be good at marketing, not just sell commodities at, with marketing. Well, and that's the thing we're trying to just figure out too is even from a marketing perspective, what to do. That way. we started a podcast earlier this year, or excuse me, late last year. We've actually started getting on TikTok as well. But I know you've you've preached as well, trying to figure out making sure that you've got one channel and one thing down first. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I agree. Not having a point. How of long have you been doing it? I, How long have you been doing those channels for? The podcast for six or seven months, and TikTok four months. Mm-hmm. Do you have a Do you have a and sense on? That, oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a sense on? Uh, so, just to clarify, this is more to clarify for people listening afterwards. Like, I think at the beginning, making two or three bets is a good thing. Because you don't necessarily know which one's going to work, so you're doing a couple things in order to get the positive signals, and then once you get the positive signals, you start to focus. So, do you have a sense of like? And it's it's interesting too in your example because I imagine that the podcast feeds TikTok, so they're kind of in the same motion. Is that how you're doing it, like we do? No, I wish okay. Um, okay. podcast isn't. I mean, what we're doing, we are to a degree on LinkedIn, where we're having the people that we interview that material is then being posted on LinkedIn. We're not doing it the same way on TikTok. They're somewhat separate, but I'd say the way that you repurpose your content on LinkedIn is very similar to what we're trying to do. Got it. And it's yes. funny too. We actually had one inbound lead come in from TikTok. It's, it's small. You had a couple too. Yeah. Um, and so this is like, it's, uh, I'm going to go on a tangent right now, but we'll get back to it. These are the reasons that experiments in B2B companies always fail for new channels because they don't give it enough time and they don't measure it the right way. And so like going into a TikTok or a YouTube, it's like, I'm looking for, I know it's going to work. I'm committed to making it work. And now I'm just going to, I need to do stuff and learn and I'm looking for positive signals. And the positive signals are people commenting, getting a bunch of followers. And now we have inbound leads that fit qualified accounts saying that they heard about us on TikTok and YouTube. And it's, it's taken us what we're almost probably five months into YouTube and two, three months into TikTok. And we're just starting to get those signals. And every other B2B company would have already pulled the plug. And so this is, I'm just using this as a learning moment for people because it's interesting that you're getting the signals too. And you started that about four months ago. It requires time to actually get the engine rolling and then you build momentum. So that was just a learning opportunity for people. So thank you. Well, and it's interesting too, and I have you to think we made the request probably five or six months ago to change the inbound form to be a free text field where it was clear as day where they wrote TikTok where who knows what it would have been if it had been just the first option that they saw or selected. Exactly. So like 
for for marketers that want to be creative and want believe that there are certain things that will definitely work that they know are not going to ever get measured by attribution software. This is the greatest thing ever. Your buyers literally tell you, this is where I found you. And it's just irrefutable. I don't know. Like, it's so weird that people quantify, they value what a software, a piece of attribution software will tell them more than what their customer says directly about where they found them. I just find it really fascinating. It's literally the greatest thing ever. And it's so simple. So I'm glad to hear that you implemented it and have success. We've been having tremendous success with it for insights, for demonstrating ROI and for understanding where to prioritize. Yeah, I mean, we're trying to take everything that you and your team are saying and applying it to our industry, knowing that it's different from the B2B SaaS companies you primarily work with. But the other thing that we're betting on is so many companies in our industry aren't willing to take some of these chances and don't no have the ability to take these risks. So we're, we're hoping we're ahead of the curve there. You're definitely going to be ahead of the curve. Talk me through a little bit more detail. Like, are you literally just like selling paper or like, let me, let's get a little bit deeper so I can give you some more advice. Well, yeah, so we're actually not selling the paper. We're the company that provides the services to have manufactured custom pieces be sent out for like direct mail or brochures that would go in the retail location, mm-hmm. other types of marketing collateral that are used in a in a B2C space primarily. Okay. So that would be like, you know, I'm a, a retailer. I make whatever jewelry, I want to make a catalog and send it in direct mail, you'll get that. Exactly. Yeah. So we get the paper, we take the art files that you send us, we take the mailing list and and manage that entire system for you and then deliver it to your prospects or customers. Yeah. Yeah. When it comes to that, if we're going deeper into like, how do you differentiate? What I would figure out is how do I how do I drink my own champagne? Like, how do I use these types of things to then show people in real life what how it could work for them? So, and, and another place where you can differentiate here is definitely on strategy and cut cu- and the customer service, customer success. So those are yeah. two other places where it's like a lot of people are going to be looking at how do I get this paper to cost five tenths of a cent less, right? Like a lot of people will be looking at things at levels like that when you get into procurement, they're just going to look at four vendors and find the cheapest one. Yep. Probably not going to win there. But how do you find the companies that are willing to pay a little bit extra for the paper so they know that they're getting a good strategy, that they have something that's already working that they believe in? I think that there will would be a lot of players. It might require further segmentation of who you're selling to. So another recommendation, I love going through this and getting into more detail because there's a lot of things that we could take away and you can re-listen to this afterwards. Is there a subset of your customers that like, how could you go after a smaller pool and then you could tailor your website, your messaging, your sales materials, your marketing to that pool as opposed to like anyone that's a B2C retailer to maybe just the retailers that sell you know, outdoor furniture or whatever. I don't, I don't know the business well enough. Yeah. There's po- probably an opportunity to do further segmentation too. And that's exactly what one of the things we're trying to do is just become so much more refined with not just saying, well, yeah, we're going to try to sell everything to everyone of, we know really clearly who our best customers are and not just going after everybody that looks like them, but being more specific about that and having a more clearly defined list. I think you're right. That's the right way to do it. Yeah. And that's, it's so crazy. It took us a while to get there, but segmentation creates differentiation. Yeah. 
Because when you further segment, you can then make the product and the messaging way more specific, which then leads people to to seeing the differentiation that you offer. It's why my it's why my company looks so different because we target a very specific group. And over the past three years, we've basically been doing product development to figure out what exactly do these companies need and why. And a lot of agents, like a lot of companies that agencies that people would think about choosing instead of us, like don't do any of that stuff. So by being really narrow on who you're going after and thinking about how do I create differentiation at the messaging level, the product level, the customer success level, I think is a interesting framework to use too. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Cool, man. That was a fun chat. Thanks for coming on. Was this your first time here? No, I'm a long time listener. Second time caller, I should say. The other time was on a Thursday session, but yeah, love everything you and your team are doing. I listen to everything religiously. Awesome. And great to hear you're putting into, pa- into practice and having success. It's awesome. Of course. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. Yeah, that reminds me just to plug. Uh, we are doing an event with Dave Gerhardt on Thursday. That's uh, March 3rd at 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. UK. So if anyone wants to join us listening to the podcast afterwards, uh, there'll be a registration link for that as well and hope to see you there on Thursday. Just drop the link in the chat for anyone interested. I got a couple questions that people um, asked me to ask on their behalf, and I promise them. So I want to get these two in. Let's so. This is from someone, their question, they are gearing up for a really big product launch at their company. And the question is around whether they should use a PR firm in the months leading up to it. I'm curious, what would be the value of investing, uh, for example, $15,000 per month in a PR firm with proven results versus spending that budget on paid LinkedIn ads? What are the key priorities that the PR, what are the key priorities that PR could achieve versus like, I guess, paid advertising? Mm. I think the question is really around, I think the decision point between investing budget and hiring a PR agency versus essentially running your own campaigns through paid ads. Yeah. I think the, the, the thing that stuck out to me is, is looking at this as an either or like, it's almost like, yeah, I wouldn't look at this as an either or. I think that there's merit to using both. I personally wouldn't choose to do PR until I can do owned marketing on my own. Owned being paid or organic or both. Because if you don't have a good story, if you're not active on social channels, if you don't know how to create demand, if you don't understand your buyers, then doing PR in a vacuum for four months and then hoping that a bunch of stuff pops out I actually think isn't going to help you get to your goal. So I think about PR as a as almost like a second or third level in a strategy, not the not level one. So with that said, as I think through it, I'd probably recommend making sure that you have other things that are running and working first. And then once those things are running, considering PR. The second thing is like it's highly dependent on the firm and the strategy of what if they're going to go out and get you if you're selling to you know, Fortune 500 executives, and they're going to go out and get you on MSNBC and all whatever other ones that talk about stocks. I don't even know the channels. So I don't watch these. These I don't watch TV that much. But they're going to get you on those channels, and they're going to get you on Joe. When well, Joe Rogan's podcast is a bad example right now, you're going to get you on big, big podcasts and different stuff like that. 
then yeah, maybe you should do it. But that's usually not what happens with, with when you hire a PR agency and you don't have a good story. So, um, it's like, it's almost too broad of a question to answer directly, but I would encourage you before you think about PR to think about how do I get a couple things that I can do myself that really work. Awesome. Um, this is another one, uh, that needed to ask privately anonymously. Um, so this is an interesting scenario. It looks like this startup is going through a, a fundraising process. And so the question is, how can marketing help during a fundraise? What can a CMO or a marketing manager do? And then kind of part two of the question is, how does the dynamic change for marketing when transitioning from a founder-run business to an investor-run business? Um, in this case, potentially having significantly higher budgets, but along with that, a lot more pressure for results. So that was a big question. I can unpack that again if I have to. <laughs> yeah, I think that there was two. It's like, how does marketing help during, like to get fundraising, not to promote a fundraising round, but how to get fundraising. Correct. Um, and then the second one was um, what happens like I'm assuming this must be a seed or a series A when you, cause they called it like founder run to investor run. So I'm assuming this is an early stage company that hasn't taken on money yet somewhere along those lines. So I'll use those assumptions as we answer the questions. The best way for marketing to help in fundraising is to drive results and demonstrate business metrics that matter, which allow you to raise money. That's it. Like, if marketing is working, CAC to LTV is looking great. Customer acquisition cost is looking great. Pipeline is growing. We can go back to investors and say, look, we're able to do this. It's repeatable. It's operationalized. If we add more money and more resources, we have confidence that we'll be able to continue to grow it because we've already grown it over the past nine months by doing this with little resources. And we understand how it works. The way for marketing to help for funding is not to put together a pretty deck. In my view, it's to actually get out and figure out how to drive results so that in, when investors see the numbers, they're like, wow, this company really gets marketing. Not that many companies that I talk to, at this, especially at this stage, really get it. I'm going to go and invest money and they're probably going to get a, you're going to get a way better valuation because that marketing is already working. So I would focus on, I would focus on that part. I see a lot of companies that work on investor relations and stuff like that, where the VP of marketing at this stage spends more time putting together an investor deck than doing actual marketing, which is not how, not how I would do it if I recommended it. So figuring out how to get marketing to work. There's a second piece of it where like understanding customers, putting like having a strategy, different things like that really matter. But at this stage, often I find that that's happening it's happening from different people in the organization than marketing at that stage. So that's my experience there. And then the second piece was, what was it again? The second piece was around, I guess, managing the transition, making the assumption that in a founder led business, you might have a, a tighter budget. There are no external pressures for results. Now you have a bunch of investors on board. You have all this money, they're willing and, and sort of pushing you to spend money. But then along with that, they're pushing for, you know, driving meaningful results in the short term. The one thing I wanted to get in there, though, in response to the first question is if you're going through a fundraise, like 
partnering with the executive team to have a real plan of what you're going to do with the investment and the money. Like I think often that isn't as clear as it should be in the fundraising process. And I think it also dovetails into the second question of like, fundraise successful, have all of the money, I'm in this new context, what then? Yeah, especially at this stage, I think the number one thing that goes wrong is that founders overcommit or overproject. They make they expand the TAM, they do certain things to make the numbers look better than they are, whether that's like squeeze out variable costs for a little while to make gross margin look better or different things like that. They'll do things that are unnatural to create a way so that the investors think the company is better than it is. And they agree, whether it's explicitly or like assumed, they agree to now moving into a growth plan that is often unnaturally fast. And so when that happens, I think, like Megan said, going into the stuff with a plan, with an idea of what would be realistic on goals so that you can calibrate that against what your executive team is signing up for, that'd be a really interesting thing. But the thing that changes, and I've, you know, I posted on, I posted on Twitter last week. It actually got quite a bit of traction. It's just like, and this is a pure, it's just a pure observation. It's in the, the observation was that a majority of heads of marketing, VPs or CMOs, heads of marketing that I talked to that work for series A, A companies are miserable and do not like their job. And that's just a trend that I see. And so what I said is it's got it's and I've been in that role before and I fucking hated that that job and that situation that I was in. Unrealistic expectations for investors, no product market fit. The companies oftentimes have first-time founders that have never done it before. You've overhired salespeople, so they have like 12 salespeople and three marketers and don't know what they're doing. They don't get marketing. There's a lot of conditions here that usually lead to being in a marketing role at these companies to be very challenging. And so those are some of the things that you need to think about and be aware of when you're joining a company at this stage, because it can very easily become the marketing death wish. All right. All right. I... Let's end the episode on something other than the marketing, please. So maybe (laughs) one more question. (laughs) One more question. We did get one other one from YouTube earlier. Let me throw it out there for you. Or uh, here, this one. Is there a way to identify intent before a demo, uh, completing a demo form? Nice broad one for you, Chris. A nice broad one. So this this allows, and I've been trying to do this because I see um, I see oftentimes the term dark funnel and dark social used interchangeably, and they are not interchangeable at all. So I'll use this opportunity to define them for people. Dark social is things that happen through its word of mouth channels through the scale of the internet that allow peers to interact with one another in places that can't be tracked by software, communities, social networks direct communication, whether that's Zooms, word of mouth, phone calls, different things like that. All of these things that are happening and you as a B2B professional know that you use these a ton to get information from your peers because of how much you trust them. None of those things, those activities create any intent data. The dark funnel is about intent data. So dark social is all these things. The divide here is that there's no intent data being created by anything in dark social. These and 
dark social typically happens before. Then people enter certain places once they already have intent, review sites, Google search, they go to your website, and then those types of things then create intent data. When you're using that part of it, you're capturing demand. When you're in dark social, you're creating demand. That's the big difference here. And so, yes, there are ways to signal intent, but like I mentioned, oftentimes there are different levels of intent. There's declared intent. A buyer says, hey, I want to buy from you right now. I want to know, I want to know more, learn more about your product and talk to your sales team. There's some account comes to your website and you reverse IP address that back and you say, oh, that account was IBM. And then you pull out some contacts of people that you think would be the buyers of your stuff at IBM. And then you unsolicited cold call them. That's assumed intent. You can tell the difference based on those two that like one is going to be far more effective than the other. And the third one is low or no intent where you basically just pull an email out from a MQL score or a database and you just cold call someone. Those are the three levels of intent. So can you get intent at the account level before someone submits a demo? Yes. You could get intent data from G2, TrustRadius, Google, Sixth Sense, which takes data from all those places and you could have it. But what you get is you get this company was doing this thing. You don't know who it was. You don't know why they were doing it. You get a ton of false positives. It's way less effective. So is it better than doing cold outbound? 100%. Any company that's still doing cold outbound without intent, like I think that that's totally suboptimal. So is it better than cold outbound? Sure. But is it anywhere close to similar to somebody saying, hey, I want to buy from your sales team now. Could I have a demo? And they do that on your website to you. The whole difference here is whether you're the, the action that you're taking is a buyer coming to you saying, hey, I want to buy, or are you going to them saying, hey, do you want to buy from us? And that difference in how they get to your pipeline makes all the difference. It makes a difference between you winning less than a half a percent of meetings or leads to winning five to 15%. And that's the difference. So I focus on trying to get more people to, to come to us and say, hey, I want to buy from you. I've already listened to your content. I already know about what you do. I've already talked to my executives. I shared your content with my team. They're all really excited. We have budget. Let's talk now. Like, and so I'm focused on driving more of those. But to answer the question shortly, like, yes, you could get account level data for ins- assumed intent um, before someone fills out a demo form. Awesome. All right. I have another question. Oh, wow. I thought that was the last on. one. <laughs> I know. I'm going to bring on Elizabeth for, for the last one. It's about the marketing death wish. No, just kidding. Just kidding. Different topic. Elizabeth, you're on live. <laughs> oh my God. Hi, everyone. I was like, I'm going to stay off camera because I'm in my kitchen emptying the dishwasher. Um, okay. So my question is, the type of product um, or the solution that we sell is more about, okay, marketing can create a demand or generate demand, but it's more about us having really consultative highly strategic conversations. And so when we have people who are curious, like what I'm learning more from like our SEO strategists are like a lot of people are not going to search for our product. And so my question was, what are you guys seeing or consulting or advising companies in lieu of on their landing page demo requests or get a demo or learn more about our product? Like what are we seeing that companies are doing right now to kind of get that 
past that stage where, okay, now they can engage with an account executive to have Mm -hmm. that, you know, high level conversation. I heard the question, but you kind of lost me. So there's like the CTA part of it, which I'm thrilled to answer. But there was another part that you moved it. You were talking about search and people aren't searching for it. Can you help me understand how those dots are connected? Sorry. Yes. Let me rephrase. So it's not necessarily that our prospects are ready to buy at the point where they're like, okay, demo request. It's usually, it just kicks off a long-term discovery process sales cycle. Like we are usually like a six months to anywhere to 12 months process evaluation. So my Mm -hmm. question is, what are you seeing in that type of area where companies, are they rethinking how they either define like that landing page call to action, calling it something else other than demo requests, because demo requests doesn't necessarily get them a demo on the first engage, like on the first touch. Like we usually like to connect first get to have an explored conversation, get a little bit more of an understanding of who they are, what they are, and what they're doing and what their challenges are. Does that, is that better? Yeah. yeah. On, on our site, we use book a strategy call. You could say, talk to an expert. There's multiple other things that, that could lead someone to understanding, okay, we're like, I'm going to have a strategic conversation about something. So those are two. There are other ones that you could use, but you can use those as ways to go and look for what other ones might be the good fit for your business. The thing that I want to drill into is like most people that come to our website are ready to buy. Our, the thing that we're selling is complex. It's expensive. Most companies have long sales cycles, but we don't. It's because of how we do marketing, right? So instead of waiting for someone to get to the website so that they can learn about our stuff, we're doing marketing in the places where they already are all the time. So like it's it's almost thinking differently about what the purpose of a website is. And maybe we take a note so I can uh, do a talk on this at some point. But like the website in B2B right now is like, all I think about it is are we enabling buyers to get the information that they need? And when they want to talk to us, can they get in touch with us and buy something? This is for net new. Obviously, it has some other priorities for, for current customers. But like... Do they have the enablement resources? Can they get pricing? Can they look at case studies? Can they get cut sheets or whatever things if it's a technical product? When they want to book a meeting to learn something, can they actually book a meeting or they actually fill out a form and then like can't get in touch with somebody? When they call our phone number, does somebody answer or does it go to voicemail? Right? So it's like you just the little things here on the website, but I think about it as not a place where I'm getting someone to try and take them through their journey. And this is really a function of having a, a primarily SEO driven and SEO first strategy will lead to this sort of this effect where most of the people that come to your website aren't looking for your product because they're searching other things and they land there. So I would think that changing the CTA, I think is one way, but I don't think it solves your issue. I think that shifting the marketing strategy to more create demand in places where people already are so that when they land on your website, they're educated, they know what you do, they're interested, they maybe got some people on board, like, I would shift that so that the marketing's happening somewhere other than the website initially that then leads them back there. Nice. All right. We can close out now, but awesome. Closing thoughts. So I'm looking forward to having everyone uh, join us on Thursday for the event with Dave Gerhard. What's the topic again? I know it's a good one. Oh, it's a story. Storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So um, the thing that I've started to notice is that a lot of the, like we talk a lot about the execution here, but actually developing like what is our story as a business and how do we do that? So maybe when I'm with Dave, what we'll do is we'll work through a couple of like real life examples. We'll pick a couple of either fictitious companies or real companies we'll work through trying to put together a story. So we'll use it for something a little bit more tangible so that people can see sort of like how the thinking works and how we put it together. So I'm excited uh, for that one. Hope for those of you that want to join, we'll be covering like how to craft your business story, which Dave just wrote a book on um, and I spend a lot of time on. So I think it'll be a really, uh, really great session. And then for anyone that like, for anyone that's started to take some of these steps that I mentioned at the beginning on tips for career growth, like if you go and put a couple of those into practice, I would love to hear, um, or maybe you already have, because I've talked about some of those like uh, in other times. And so if you've been doing some of those things, would love to hear how it's going or if there were other ideas that you've had that have been really working well for you. Cause I would love to know about that. I'd love to sort of try it for myself and, and see. So, but I'm hoping that, over time, we can start to expand the nature of the topics here that broaden out farther than demand gen. I think that we're actually like, we're heading toward episode 100. I feel right now that like a lot of people, like people here have been here for a while, right? There's some new people, but there's a ton of content that we have on demand gen. But if we moved out, like I have a lot of stuff to share on hiring. I have a ton of stuff to share on how you finance a company. I have a ton of stuff to share on business fundamentals, um, on career growth, on things like that. And so as we continue to go, expect, uh, I've alluded to this a couple of times, but I expect that we'll start to mix up the content to continue to keep it interesting. So if you have requests about certain, like it doesn't have to be super specific or a, a question, but if you have high level topics or areas that would be interesting for you, for me to talk about, I would love to hear those as we think about what's next for the demand gen live programming and community i'm super excited for the 100th episode next week it's gonna be amazing we have a special surprise at the end too i'm gonna keep you in suspense so yeah just see you all there tell your friends awesome thanks everyone see you next week for episode 100 appreciate you all Hey everyone, really appreciate you tuning into this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. And I just wanted to take a second to say to all of the listeners out there, we just crossed over 40,000 listeners across the world to this podcast. And so super grateful and super happy that for all of you, really appreciate you tuning in, attending the live events, engaging on the LinkedIn content, and now watching us get started up and engaging on YouTube and TikTok. And so Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you. And if you haven't already, if you've gotten value from the podcast, I would really appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcasts in the review section of this podcast and leave a quick review or a rating. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you very much. And we'll see you for the next episode.